0: Hello and welcome to the Access of Space, Defense, and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research, breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space, defense, and security. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to episode 55 and 56, Beyond Conventional, Emerging Threats and the Future of War. To have a deeper look at this topic, we have today with us, Dr. Sean McFitt. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: Thank you very much, Sean. I have been reading your post articles and I've seen like several of your books published as well. Uh, so I I was very much curious to have an individual like you, an expert, I would say, uh, like you on the podcast, because I, I had several experts, you know, from the SIN tanks, uh, from several of the government institutions, uh, but there were hardly any experts who, who have written, like, you know, a series of books, I would say, uh, on s- certain topics in the national security domain, in the terrorism and the intelligence side. Uh, so, yeah, thank you very much. I'm really excited to have this conversation. So, yeah, but uh, before we take a deeper uh, look into the topic, can you briefly tell us about yourself, uh, your academic background and uh, your research experience and how you ended up being who you are as at the moment?
1: <laughs> sure. Um, I've had sort of a hopscotch career. I, um, I'm a prof- My name is Dr. Sean McFaith. I'm a professor of international security studies and really war at uh, the National Defense University in Washington, DC, which is the US's premier war college, at Georgetown University's uh, Foreign Service School, and at Circus University's Maxwell School. Uh, I've also worked for several think tanks, like RAND and the Atlantic Council. But before any of this, um, I was an officer in the US Army's 82nd Airborne Division, their sort of elite paratrooper unit. And then after that, I got out and I hopped the fence, as they say, to the dark side, and I became a private military contractor globally. And, you know, some would say that's a euphemism for a mercenary, um, but I was doing all sorts of stuff around the world, not just Iraq or Afghanistan. And that taught me to see the world and warfare and strategy in a very different light. In you know ways you can't learn about modern warfare in libraries alone. So my sort of mission since then, since I got out of that, was to sort of reveal this world. And I've written a lot of um, you know serious nonfiction about this. Uh, also, I've written novels. I'm a novelist. Uh, I'm trying to tell that story through novels. I advise gaming companies. I advise Hollywood, and I advise the Pentagon.
0: Interesting, I think that's that's a very exciting, I would say, <laughs> journey. But I'm pretty sure it has there have been like several challenges that you might have faced for sure. Uh, because reaching this position, uh, accepting the challenges, especially when you are on field and converting those challenges into an opportunity is, you know, it it feels very nice to hear the stories. But you know, the person like you who is on ground knows the actual fact of, you know, what you go through complete, of course, the uh, the mental pressure, the physical demanding things as well. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure we'll be discussing most of these things in the further part of the conversation as well.
1: Yes, yes, we will. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I'm not going to paint it over. It was all easy and meant to be. A, I think young people, when they start, they have two paths. They can take the path well trodden, And they could achieve some success in that, whether you're a lawyer or a government official or a military officer, or you can try to create a self-invented path. And that's hard. And you never really get positive feedback because you don't look, you look weird to everybody. But I would say that to young people out there, it means the first half of your career will be very hard, but the second half will be much easier you'll see things nobody else can see and you can do things nobody else can possibly dream of
0: yes definitely yes and uh you know just to i mean take a deep dive and a little bit broaden the horizon on the conversation that we just had uh, you know we have a very broad range of audience on the podcast uh, and that's the reason i, I always um, uh, keep to start it with uh, i would say basic questions basically as we are discussing about war uh, you mentioned about Iraq as well. Uh, so, as we ha- have this, you know, uh, wide spectrum of audience. So, can you please tell us what is the difference between regular and irregular warfare?
1: Yes, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, regular warfare, irregular warfare. It has many names: conventional warfare, unconventional warfare, symmetrical warfare, so, you know, unsymmetrical or asymmetrical. So when you think about, you ask people, what is war? They usually think about like World War II or World War I. And that's what we call regular warfare. It's state on state, only state on state. And they're fought with, through industrial strength, and militaries that nominally obey the laws of war, that wear uniforms, that don't attack civilians, um, et, et cetera. And you see, and this is a, it's really about brute force, And it's about big battles and how big battles win the war so think of like um stalingrad you know that was the point upon which the soviet union really defeated nazi germany it's not the day that warfare ended but it's the day that um the war was won uh same with the battle of midway in world war ii where the the tide of war turned against the japanese and for the americans and their allies so this is conventional warfare. think of think of World War II movies. Now, unconventional warfare is everything else. It doesn't look like that. Um, so think of what, um, you know, Israel is doing in uh, Hamas. Think about al-Qaeda. think about wars against terrorists. think about wars against narcos. Think about, you know, non-state actors and and sort of like wars in Africa that nobody quite understands. And so, you know, but we think of war, as looking like World War II, That's the way it ought to look. But if you look at wars since World War II, only 6% 6 are conventional. That means 94% of all wars since 1945 have been unconventional. Yet the way that NATO wants to fight, for example, is conventionally. And one of my jobs, I find, is is to challenge that. Are we sure this is the future of war? Because it costs a lot of money. Yes.
0: Definitely. And yeah, uh, I think on the same lines itself, how do you see the role of traditional military alliances, as you mentioned, especially about NATO, evolving in the face of emerging threats? Because I believe emerging threats are something, you know, very much hybrid in nature, as uh, several non-state actors are also involved in it.
1: So warfare evolves. So one... To answer the question about like NATO, you know NATO's there's a saying that generals always fight the last war they won. And NATO is stuck with this problem. They're still fighting um, how do we win World War II with better technology? So they're investing heavily in conventional militaries, tanks, F-35s, you know, aircraft carriers, Meanwhile, you know, warfare has moved on, but NATO has not. The U.S. has not, Um, you know, warfare is now involves things like non attributional forces, like special operations forces, mercenaries, terrorist organizations, narco organizations, Um, and some states like Russia have evolved with it. So if you look at the war in Ukraine right now, people think of this as a conventional war. Why do they think that? Well, it's fought by two militaries that generally wear uniforms, not always. Um, Russia, Ukraine, it's interstate. They see tanks, artilleries, they see front lines, they see trenches. It reminds them of conventional wars like Stalingrad, the, you know, the Battle of Verdun, the Battle of the Somme in World War I. And it has some aspects of that, but those are really not the most important aspects of the war in Ukraine. You know, After the spring and summer and now fall offensive, which Ukraine launched against Russia, which was purely conventional, it was a total failure. They achieved nothing. They didn't achieve any new significant territory. All this money, all these lives, everything was poured into it. And now NATO doesn't want to give money anymore to Ukraine as a result. They're like, you wasted it all. Um, of course, the US was pushing them to do these silly tactics, but we'll get back to that if you wish. But if you look at the unconventional aspects of the war, they been, have been determinative. So in February of 2022, we all remember how Russia did a blitzkrieg into Ukraine and everybody, including Moscow and NATO, thought Kiev would fall in three days. And it didn't happen kiev the ukrainians fought back using guerrilla warfare unconventional warfare anti-tank missiles and guerrilla units and totally pushed back the blitzkrieg after four weeks of failure putin changed his strategy from conventional war to russian unconventional war and what that means is and we've they've been fighting it ever since russian unconventional war is not winning hearts and minds. it's Flattening cities and massacring civilians, as they did in Grozny, Aleppo, and Mariupol. Mm -hmm. And they're they're targeting civilians as a form of terrorism, like al-Qaeda. You know, if we deliberately kill civilians, they will demand their government to do a ceasefire. That's not conventional warfare. Deliberately targeting civilians is strictly against the laws of armed conflict. And the laws of armed conflict were created to manage conventional war. Other things are not conventional. You know, the Wagner Group, a mercenary army, the most effective Russian fighting unit in, uh, in, until their demise, that's a mercenary army. That's not conventional at all. And both sides are using disinformation, which is not conventional warfare either. I mean, Russia is a disinformation superpower. Yes, we understand that. But so is Ukraine. I mean, we all remember Snake Island, when these two Ukraine, these Ukrainian soldiers on this island in the Black Sea were flipping their middle finger to, uh, to the Russian Moskva, their capital warship. And uh, and of course, the, the Moskva destroyed that squad. Well, t- and they made them to martyrs. Ukraine made them to martyrs, had postage stamps about them. They used this to rally support and money from NATO. And it turns out that was complete information op. those soldiers were fine. It was totally staged. And so th- the, the role of disinformation is becoming pivotal. For all sides in ways that conventional warriors would not get so one of the problems is is that we are stuck in a conventional war paradigm and we keep on looking at this war of ukraine as a conventional war when really it's not very conventional and the most successful bits and pieces of it are unconventional
0: interesting yeah the uh uh, actually the fake news uh, the disinformation this point's are very crucial i believe I, I recently had one episode actually uh with one of the experts who is associated with uh, french foreign affairs and he even mentioned the similar thing uh it's 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 a huge i would say uh threat uh, than anything else i mean you don't really have to drop a missile uh, to scatter yeah. you know uh the public and create a havoc in in some part of the world or, you know, in some part of the state, uh, uh, one disinformation can actually take everything down
1: in just a few days. And the the reason why is that in the last last 30 years, we've increasingly lived in an information age. And barring accidental nuclear warfare, we will continue to live in an information age. And in an information age, it changes geopolitics and it changes warfare. We are still stuck fighting uh, like World War II, 1940s era war, which was not an information age. That's when firepower was the most decisive form of warfare. Today, information at at the tactical level of war, the operational level of war, and the strategic level of war, that's what's determinative. And, um, and it allows... Um, you know, weaker military powers to beat strong military powers if they know how to wield disinformation. And in fact, if you look at Zelensky, president of Ukraine, who's a former actor, he and his administration know how to wield a good meme. And that has been very costly for Russia, especially in the first 12 months of that war. So as long as we're stuck in this 19, this World War II paradigm, we're never going to learn how to win. And that's the problem, I think, that people have with Ukraine, where, you know, Ukraine and the US and NATO are stuck in a way of warfare that is obsolete.
0: Yes. And just to, you know, take a step ahead, how might technological advancement reshape the dynamics of military alliances in the future?
1: Well, I think um, technology has a huge impact of war, especially in the world of techno- of information. Um, but it's also a it's also a challenge. I mean, we could talk about, you know, how NATO can rely on, say, the F-35 fighter jet as its common platform for air to air. But of course, when was the last time there was a strategic air fight in the world? Right? I mean, are Mm -hmm. fighter jets even, are they even, are they too obsolete? I mean, you've got cheap drones doing fighter jets, and fighter jets are not really determinative in the Ukraine war. Um, so why are we focusing on what a fighter jet can do i mean the u.s has been at war someplace for the last 20 years uh the f-35 has zero combat missions right zero yes so why it's and it's not deterring anybody like nuclear weapons so what's the point of spending 1.7 trillion dollars on a fighter jet that doesn't go to war and 1.7 trillion dollars which at the cost of the program you know that's more than russia's gdp um it's silliness so i think technology and so i think that technology has an important role but can also be an adverse role because i think it's you know we're pointing to the wrong north star in nato but i do think that nato's nato does have to think about hard questions that involve technology nato is a democratic alliance of democracies now democracies are very vulnerable to disinformation because, yes. you know, you know, we know Russia tries to sway elections throughout, you know, NATO countries. And mm-hmm. we don't know how successful they are, uh, but we do know they try hard. And how does a democracy fight disinformation without becoming an autocracy in the process? How does a democracy fight disinformation without censorship, without, you know, all these things that democracy depends on? And that's why Russia and China and others use disinformation today. So the question is, what kind of technologies do we need as a democracy to fight disinformation? So who cares about yes. air-to-air missiles and air-to-air combat when we have a strategic problem of autocracies you know, trying to infiltrate democracies with disinformation, to try to swing close elections, to try to undermine trust of political institutions? know, that's a strategic way to win because the strategic logic is this of Russia yes. you know who cares about the sword if you can manipulate the mind that wields it and that's what disinformation does yes. so I think Technologies have an important role to play in alliance cohesion and alliance structure but currently NATO is fighting a 20th century they're using 20th century models for a 21st century problem
0: yeah I believe uh, you have you have already covered most of the part that uh, I was going to actually ask you further in the conversation. But yeah, just a little bit backtrack and uh, also touch up on the cyber warfare because uh, we discussed about technological advancement. So as we navigate the era of cyber warfare as well, uh, because I think the disinformation, all these things are a part of somewhere, you know, cyber warfare as well, because everything works through the networks. Uh, so how sh- how should military alliances or you know even you know uh, an individual military organization uh, collaborate uh, with any other allied nations to enhance the digital security in terms of you know countering threats, especially.
1: Well, cyber warfare is an interesting topic um, because first of all, it can mean many things to many different people, and while everybody acknowledges, cyber warfare is a critical element of future warfare and future statecraft. Not everybody agrees even on the basic definition of what cyber is. And one problem is that 25 years ago, the United States, for example, started to conflate cyber with information. Right. And that's not necessarily true. I mean, if you look at media studies, information uses many different channels. Channels is like a vector of information. It can be radio, it can be podcast, it can be, you know, letter mail, it can be anything on the internet, uh, it can be cable TV. Those are all different channels for information, for communication, and cyber is an in information age is the fastest and, you know, are ultimately probably the best channel. So it gets used that way, and, but that doesn't make an email a cyber weapon. It doesn't make a podcast a cyber weapon. It's part of a larger malign information campaign. Now, other people also use cyber and digital to do uh, sabotage. So, information. I mean, cyber has two good big components in warfare. One is disinformation, and the second is in sabotage. So, think of 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 um, how the U.S. think of like um, um, Stuxnet in two thousand ten or eleven, where the U.S. and Israel put a virus into, um, Iran's nuclear reactor program to dismantle it. And it had Mm. a limited effect. Um, so some people think that that's the, the forte of cyber, but I've been saying it's never been a forte of cyber. The real forte of cyber has been disinformation and you don't have to look far. Mm. I mean, look, I mean, where we expected Russia to cyber crush Ukraine in early 2022, zero impact no cyber anything it did not impact the war um you know even the 2000 even the stuxnet had just a temporary impact that was you know basically you know iran just bought some new centrifuges and updated their software and that was it um so which led to the iran you know nuclear deal um so i think that the true power of cyber is in information and in and for nato it's also operational security um but the problem of cyber is it's not just a a military function alone it's uh it requires a whole of government approach and it requires um public private partnerships because some of the the most impressive cyber capabilities are not in the public sector than the private sector so um you know, this is a challenge for NATO countries. I mean, how do you get, otherwise you we're seeing today if you have cyber mercenaries, right? You know, people who work for the NSA in the United States now work for the UAE or you have hackback companies. There's all sorts of weird things that are going on in the cyber world. So we can't think of cyber as just sort of like um, conventional warfare in cyberspace. It's, we need, we don't, we really don't really have good cyber strategists yet after 25 years of discussing this. And we need some thinking about this. And that. That may, those cyber strategists may not come from the military world. They may come from elsewhere.
0: Yes. And, and one of the interesting points you mentioned was about Stuxnet. Uh, I, I actually closely observed the case of Stuxnet. And when we see the patch of 10 years, I think it was deployed in 2010. And it's more than a decade now, almost 13 years if we look at iran then and if we look at the iran now it's not only nuclear uh, it doesn't it doesn't only have the nuclear capabilities uh, at at some levels but it is also capable to launch the satellites in space too uh, which yeah. is, which means it has the ballistic missile capabilities too so uh, yeah. with that respect you know we have seen uh, somewhere you know that program might have backfired you know it came uh, it was uh, sent as a curse, but it came as a blessing for Iran somewhere, you know. I mean, when you push something, some uh, some adversaries too hard, you know, uh, they start developing capabilities. I think uh, that that's what I have seen happening with Iran. Uh, because, you know, there have been uh, several, I think, uh, back-channel uh, talks that have been going on. Several of the Eastern European nations are also interested to buy drones from them. But of course, you know, the, because of the sanctions and their NATO membership, they cannot do that. Uh, but that's the level of efficiency I think they have achieved in then in their uh, engineering uh, of the drones as well. So, you know, from that perspective, uh, and, you know, there, there has been, I think, the alliance or the collaborations going on between Iran, uh, North Korea, and Russia. We, uh, it's still, you know, not evident on what level or how st- strong it is. So from that perspective, are there any emerging global trends that could reshape the landscape of military alliances in the coming decades? Um,
1: yes, I think that this is a the question of military alliances in the coming decade is front and center for the United States of America, for the government here. Uh, and also depending on the political party because um, President Biden, who's a Democrat, wants stronger, military alliances around the world, they, he thinks that alliances and collective security agreements are the answer to contain, uh, you know, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and to some extent, you know, terrorism, which is, hasn't gone away as we've seen in in Gaza Strip today. Um, meanwhile, if a lot of Republicans and Donald Trump want an isolationist policy where they cut all ties. They want like no more NATO, no more South Korea, America for American needs. And so there's this you know big debate as we speak on the hill right now like President Zelensky this week is in Washington DC trying to get more support, more money, more material for Ukraine, and the Republicans are saying, "No, we're tired of giving money to other people's failing wars, whether it be Ukraine or Israel or Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan." And American taxpayers, I think, have a claim here. Like, why are we why are we giving you know trillions of dollars ultimately in the last twenty years to nations who cannot defend themselves when we have needs here at home? So there is this existential question, not for the U.S., but I also think also for global security order of the US in or out. And so, um, and there's, a you know, and I think there's, there's all sorts of perceptions or misperceptions. Americans believe that most of these, these agreements, whether it be NATO or Iraq, or, you know, that, that NATO are a bunch of free riders, They they don't do their share, we do most of the heavy work and stuff like that. And Americans are tired of dying, going abroad to trying to die for other people's wars, which raises yes. the question of Russia invades the Baltics, for example, yes. is United of America really going to go to war and risk nuclear warfare with Russia over 6 million people in Latvia, which they don't know anything, they can't even find it in the map. And I think that's a reasonable question. Um, and I, I think that you know american political leaders need to make a case to americans why that needs to be the way it is and i don't think the biden administration has fully made that case where it wouldn't be hard for trump to make that case so i think that um in my opinion military alliances are essential um but it's also to the point where i think you look at um you know the asia pacific region Countries there don't really welcome China, but they don't see America as a reliable partner, which is sort of driving them into China's bosom to some extent. I mean, Vietnam, Korea, and Japan do not want to work with China, but they feel they may have no choice if America is not dependable. They feel like there's two trains leaving the station. You have to get on one train now. One's going to Washington. One's going to Beijing. But the Washington train might break down. So what are you going to do? So I think this whole question of alliances is actually uh, top of mind for international relations today.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. If you find our podcast insightful, then please like, share, and subscribe. See you in the next episode. Thank you.